This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where I look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? I'm really enjoying the little kick of classic films we've been exploring here, so... Why not keep that going and dig into 1953's House of Wax, the Vincent Price-starring remake of the 1933 film The Mystery of the Wax Museum, and based on the short story The Waxworks by Charles Belden. Of course, there is also the 2005 remake as well. The Mystery of the Wax Museum is just so slightly more challenging to get a hold of. I don't believe it is available on any streaming or VOD platforms at the current moment, but there is a very nifty WB Archive Collection Blu-ray release out there for my fellow Faye Ray fans. I also uh, only have the vase recollection of seeing it, or maybe it was just clips of it at some point, so... Needless to say, I'm not going to be really talking about that version, but I will be mentioning uh, some elements of the 2005 remake towards the very end. Alright, so let's get to it and let's talk about 1953's House of Wax.
here is our plot synopsis from our good friend Wikipedia. In New York City in the early 1900s, Professor Henry Jared is a talented sculptor who runs a wax museum. He creates wax statues of historical figures, but his business partner, Matthew Burke, is frustrated uh, that Jared will not take a more will not take on more sensational exhibits like those that draw crowds to their competitors and wants to end their partnership. A friend brings a wealthy art critic named Sidney Wallace to see the museum, and Wallace indicates he may be interested in buying Burke out when he gets back from Egypt in three months. But Burke says he needs some money sooner than that, and it's for another investment opportunity. And he then suggests burning down the museum to collect a $25,000 insurance policy. To Jared's horror, Burke then just starts a fire, which spreads rapidly, and the two men fight while Jared's wax masterworks melt. Burke gets the better of Jared and leaves, and Jared is still inside when the building explodes. Overcoming the fact that Jared's body was never found, Burke is able to get all of the insurance money for himself. A disfigured man in a cloak strangles him and stages the murder to look like a suicide. And a few weeks later, the same man murders Burke's fiancée, Kathy Gray. Her unemployed roommate, Sue Allen, comes home and stumbles upon the murderer. She flees, and he gives chase, but she makes it to her friend Scott Andrews' home. That night, the man steals Kathy's body from the morgue by lowering it out the window to two accomplices. Wallace receives a letter from Jared and learns he miraculously survived the fire, though he now uses a wheelchair and his hands are too damaged to sculpt. Jared asks Wallace to invest in a new wax museum, which will feature statues made by his assistant, Igor, who is deaf and mute, and another associate, Leon Averill. He hopes to recreate his favorite pieces from his old museum, but will also concede to popular taste by including a chamber of horror, showcasing acts of violence from the past and the present including the apparent suicide of Burke, whose corpse went missing from the morgue. Sue attends the opening of Jared's museum with Scott and is troubled by how much the Joan of Arc statue looks like Kathy. Jared overhears her and claims he based the figure on photos of Kathy he saw in the newspaper. He then hires Scott, who is a sculptor protege of Wallace, as an assistant, and asks Sue to model for a new Marie Antoinette statue, as she strongly resembles his earlier one. Believing Kathy's body was used to make the Joan of Arc statue, Sue talks to Detective Lieutenant Tom Brennan. He agrees to investigate Jared and his museum, and Sergeant Jim Shane recognizes Avril as a criminal wanted for breaking parole. Shane arrests Avril, who is who has a pockwatchet belonging to a missing deputy city attorney, on him. Though he says he found it on uh, the train. The same night, Sue arrives at the museum after hours to meet with Scott, but Jared sent him on an errand when he heard she was coming. Not finding anyone around, 
She pulls a brunette wig off the Joan of Arc statue, exposing Kathy's blonde hair underneath, which proves to her that the figure is indeed Kathy's wax-coated body. Jared observes her discovery and gets up from his wheelchair. He grabs Sue and she strikes him, shattering the wax mask that concealed his face. Sue recognizes Jared as the murderer and faints. To get a drink, Avril, an alcoholic, tells Brennan that many of Jared's figures have real bodies under the wax. As the police race to the House of Wax and Jared prepares to turn Sue into his beloved Marie Antoinette, Scott returns to the museum and, finding Sue's purse next to the wig and wheelchair, searches for her. Igor tries to stop him, and they tussle, and the police arrive just in time to, present, to prevent Igor from decapitating Scott with the guillotine in one of the displays. The police storm into Jared's workshop, and Jared fights them off until he is knocked into a vat of hot wax. Brennan moves Sue out of the way before the wax pours over her. <clears throat> so, I want to kick off the discussion with an interesting disability-related kind of making of film fun fact. This film was shot both in Technicolor and 3D. Upon the of 1953, it was the first 3D film to be presented with stereophonic sound in a regular theater, and the first color 3D film to be released by a major studio, Warner Brothers. What makes this particularly interesting and um, connected to disability? The director, Andre de Tooth, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, was visually impaired, having lost an eye at an early age, and wore an eye patch, making it impossible for him to see the film with this effect. And a bonus little fun fact, connect to the last episode on Rare Window, possibly. I did find a mention of Toth being an uncredited second unit director of uh, 1978's Superman, starring Christopher Reeve. Emphasis, uncredited bit here. And uh, not being able to find a ton of info on this, I've that's kind of why I threw in the possibly. On to talking about the film proper, though. To talk about disability and House of Wax, it comes down to one thing. The disabled villain trope. The disabled villain trope is really a foundation for disability representation in horror. And I have talked about it in a handful of previous episodes, but I want to get just a little bit deeper here. I put some sources in the show notes that I think do a really nice job at explaining the vastness of the dis the disabled villain trope and kind of look at that trope from a lot of different angles. But let's answer the question, what exactly is the disabled villain trope? Well, it's the use of a character's physical difference or disability. And I kind of word it that way because I think it's to emphasize the fact that this is physical or mental health related to emphasize either their evil nature or to make them a character to fear. 
in an early episode of the pod where I talked about Jason and Leatherface, I pointed out that their physical differences, their deformities, are used to elicit as much fear and terror in their victims as their respective weapons. Now, using a character's physical difference or disability to elicit fear can also play into account when that character isn't necessarily the villain. And I hit on this when talking about hereditary in Midsommar, how the use of these uh, physically different characters um, are used to almost provide a red herring to some effect to make us fear these characters, think that something horrific is going to be doled out by them simply because they look different and it's not the case. So that's kind of a, a, a little bit of the nuts, the general nuts and bolts of the disabled villain trope. In House of Wax, we meet Jared uh, prior to the museum fire, thus prior to his disability. For a lack of much better word or term here, he can only be described as mild-mannered. He's passionate about his work, but gentle. He focuses on historical figures, and with only a couple of exceptions, steers away from anything that's violent, or in his own word, macabre. But then, good old business partner Maddie sets his life's work ablaze and leaves him to perish along with his creations for the insurance money. Jared that survives is severely scarred and now begins the disabled villain lap, not only killing Maddie and Kathy out of pointed revenge, but others to make the figures in this new museum. The dark and violent things he rebuffed prior to his disability are now kind of his personality, and he kind of delights in them. He isn't just showcasing horrific events from the past with his new exhibits, but also going to violent lengths for some straight-from-the-headlines uh, local atrocities as well. Now, this may be a bit of a stretch, but go with me here. I also think that Jared has a lot of self-hatred that manifests in wanting to punish others, either because of their individually expressed vanity, uh, with Kathy being an example here, uh, because, you know, she's very, she's kind of a, a stereotypical gold digger type character. She's really uh, just in it for kind of money and to kind of be seen and, um, you know, is really delighting in the fact that uh, Maddie is going to get this insurance money before we realize that Jared has survived the fire. So uh, she also has some really interesting comments to Sue about, you know, well, you're kind of the brains and I'm the beauty. Not exactly the quotes, but kind of what her general gist is. 
So you've got that example uh, with Kathy, but I think also the society's fascination and then kind of dismissal repulsion of anything seen not beautiful. One of Jared's words that he kept coming back to was beautiful at the very beginning. He really took um, a certain amount of pride in his work and wanted to create these really beautiful kind of scenes with his figures. And like I said, he didn't want anything that was, you know, violent or, or bloody or anything like that. Really the only thing that came to note in uh, the uh, kind of museum prior to the fire was the assassination of Lincoln. And he has this really funny kind of conversation with the potential investor about how he uh, kind of put together Booth and the conversations he was having with Booth as he was, you know, uh, getting in the pose, all of that stuff. It, it's really kind of humorous, but I think just pinpoints that he wasn't, uh, you know, a violent person. That wasn't something he was interested in. And so, uh, you kind of tie all of this in with what he does in the film to kind of rebuild the museum with these really dark exhibits of violence and, um, you know, his ultimate demise in a vat of wax, fittingly. He really does complete the full disabled villain arc. His evilness is connected directly to his disability. It wasn't until the fire that kind of unlocked and connected him to this violent nature. And so I think that's something that's really important to note here. Now, one of his assistants, Igor, is interesting as well. He's nonverbal, he is deaf, and is also, I guess, kind of encompassing bits of the disabled villain trope himself, because he seems nonplussed about, you know, the acts that they're doing to create these figures, and attacks Scott, and tries to chop his head off with the guillotine. I, I mean, the character isn't really developed. We know nothing about Igor, how Igor and Jared became acquainted, um, any of that. So it, it's, you know, kind of impossible to really spell out the full arc there. But I think one additional element that I think is important to uh, to really know about the disabled villain arc is, I mean, we're really seeing all these components coming together. Um, but one is always the kind of tragic backstory that's often associated with the disability because the film has to be somewhat invested in us having a modicum of sympathy for these characters. We, we want to kind of understand and make sense of why they would commit these horrific 
X and it comes down to disability. And that's kind of where it becomes problematic. It begins to draw parallels between someone being disabled or physically different to uh, being evil and sinister and to be feared. And that's kind of the, the, the problematic element. Because I think it's important to highlight that this isn't to say that there can't be a disabled villain in a film. Absolutely, that is not what's being said here. But when you connect it to their disability in kind of these ways that I've talked about, then it becomes a little bit more of that connection between, you know, uh, the person is this way as a result of their disability, and it's just kind of a mess. But does that mean that we don't enjoy these films that kind of delve into these tropes? Just talk about them and say, yeah, that's not great. And I'm glad that in 2022, our conversations can be had, and we can also include different kinds of representation that kind of subvert or play on these tropes in really interesting ways that I think uh, show better representation. Now, one of the last little specific things I want to mention about uh, 1953's House of Wax before I talk about the remake for a couple of minutes is that there's this line, and I only like partway wrote it down, um, so this is a paraphrase, but when Sue is talking to the police after she has found Kathy dead and she sees Jared there, and this is before Jared kind of reemerges with the wax mask uh, to relaunch the museum, but as she is, as Sue is describing Jared, as she saw him in the room, the police are like, that doesn't even sound like a human being. And I think her retort is something like, well, no, it was, it was real. I saw it. It was a person. And I don't know. There's just something that's really interesting about that as well, that there's that response of, well, someone that had this kind of uh, scarring on their face, because I, I will say that without the mask, it kind of looks like melted wax a little bit, um, which I think is probably intentional. But uh, yeah, they're, they're really just like that. That doesn't sound like a human being. So it just speaks to kind of a dehumanization of folks with physical differences. And yeah, it stood out to me. It wasn't something that I had noticed before when I watched the film or something that really popped out at me, but uh, I don't know, maybe because I was just sitting there taking lots and lots of notes and what have you, that particular moment just kind of zinged. So there's just a lot of kind of elements at play uh, in the film that talk about disability. And I was really surprised. Uh, there's a ton of stuff out on the web talking about, you know, disabled villains in horror and 
um, you know, the probe and all of that. But when giving examples, I never saw House of Wax on any of the lists. Maybe one or two might have squeezed it in. But I, watching this, I felt like this really checked every single kind of box of, of how we envision that specific character. So, I don't know. That was something that really um, kind of stood out to me uh, in kind of prep for the episode. All right, so to switch gears just briefly and talk about the 2005 remake, I think I mentioned in previous episodes, I almost thought about um, covering the remake when talking about siblings, and who knows how I might incorporate that later, but, um, so the story, uh, is very different in the remake. You have these, I think, just either college or just post-college, um, group of people going to a football game, and they come to a, basically a town of wax, not just a museum, but basically like a little tourist town um, of wax and hijinks and hilarity ensue. But what kind of the disability element in this version is that at the very, very beginning, I think the opening, the very opening of the film, is you see uh, two kids. Uh, one... Or, and, and you don't see, like, them in, in full shot. You see them in high chairs. You see two young kids in high chairs, but you only see them from, like, the neck down. And one is uh, sitting very kind of quietly uh, and, and not doing anything. The other one is, begins acting out, lashing out, and strained with these really horrific-looking straps. And then, as the film progresses, we realize that the town, um, the kind of the original creator of the town passed away. It's been continued on by her twin sons, and one of the sons has a disability. And so, the film kind of wants to bait you into thinking that the killer is the disabled son that that was the son that was acting out at the very beginning you know again playing on some of those stereotypes and bits of the disabled villain trope but it kind of i guess subverts it and has it be the old twin so it's interesting. I think in doing that, um, I don't know if it necessarily subverted the trope in the ways that it, I, I think they wanted to or intended to. Um, I don't know. I kind of struggle with it because I feel like in doing that, you're just swapping out the disability with the stigmatization of mental illness. And, yeah, I don't know. It's 
kind of a smorgasbord of messiness and again with that opening sequence really kind of framed in abuse and uh yeah it's it's a difficult thing to parse out which is kind of why i steered away from talking about it when i did the episode specifically on kind of sibling relationships but i don't know it might be an interesting thing to to revisit at some point but that is how they kind of approach that and it's all kind of framed in the context of good twin bad twin because uh, Alicia Cuthbert and Chad Michael Murray play twins and one is the um you know the good twin the twin that's doing all the things right and the other one is kind of the troublemaker and I don't connections all around but I think it's worth uh, mentioning that that's what it is and I, I found it really interesting that they kind of kept some connection um, to disability in the remake, whether for better or worse. I happen to to think the remake is quite good. Um, I think the 1953 version is superior. I absolutely love it. I mean, it's Vincent Price. Um, and the performances all around are really 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 good uh particularly uh uh carolyn jones who was morticia adams in the adams family tv series and she was also uh, another kind of connect to the previous uh hitchcock episode uh she was in the man who knew too much and um but she plays the character of Kathy with such a zeal and relish that it's an absolute treat. Um, but all the performances are great. I really, 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 really like uh, the 1953 version of House of Wax. And now I'm kind of recommitting myself to watching Mysteries of the Wax Museum. Because again, I have some vague recollection of at least seeing clips. So, um, yeah, I definitely highly recommend. And it will, I, I, from my understanding, the plot from the uh, 33 version Mystery of the Wax Museum and the 53 version are very, very, very similar, if not pretty much photocopied. So will be interesting to see kind of what little differences there may be in the films. But yes, highly recommend uh, watching House of Wax. So yeah, I, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Uh, I feel really great about kind of returning to something that I feel gets at the basics, the fundamentals, the foundation of disability representation in horror and really the disabled villain trope doesn't just exist in horror it's kind of what disability representation in horror was built on but we see disabled villain trope run amok in all genres in all forms of media so yeah 
I, I, I don't know. It, this has been a nice little return to the fundamentals, and I hope this has been enjoyable as well. I do promise that I will get back to, you know, something more current um, very soon. <laughs> but this has just been nice, going back and looking at some of these older films. So, yeah. And, of course, that's a nice segue to say if you have suggestions that you want to offer in terms of films that you would like to see covered here on the pod, I'm always open for suggestions because there have been some instances where I have struggled uh, to kind of come up with something that I felt was really interesting and different. So, um, you know, do feel free to shoot me an email if you have suggestions or if you just want to say hello. Uh, the email is in the show notes, of course, along with everything else. And if you have stumbled upon this podcast and you are not subscribed to the Anatomy of a Screen feed, please, please, please make sure to subscribe because not only is this the home of Bodies of Horror, but so many other great shows um, that I mention, I think, in every episode because I love them so much. And yeah, um, you know, we are a proud member of the anatomy of the Screen Pod Squad. So make sure you are subscribed if you haven't already done so. And my heartfelt gratitude to my uh, friends at Anatomy of the Screen for making sure that Bodies of Horror has a home here. Much, much appreciated. I will mention before signing off something I haven't done before, but I don't know. It's because I'm a little conflicted. So I have recently been on other podcasts to talk about some various films, and I'm always really hesitant to kind of promote them. Not because I don't want to promote the podcast. That is absolutely not the case. It's because it just, it feels awkward to me. I'm not a self-promo type person. So I'm going to try to do a little bit better about that because I really appreciate being asked to come on to other podcasts and talk about random things um just within like the last six months to a year i've talked about everything from ya uh, i did a podcast with jill from horror queers and and one of our uh, fearless leaders here at anatomy of a scream he also because he's a man of many podcasts and uh, never sleeps, I assume, uh, has a YA-themed podcast and asked me to talk about Five Feet Apart, which is disability-related, and so I've done that. I've been on the pod and pendulum uh, a few times, I think, in the past uh, six months or so, talking about... Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I did, a, a, I think, two or three episodes 
on those various entries, and you know I was on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Prime episode to forever express my love, appreciation, adoration to Franklin. And uh, I did some trailer um, kind of business as well, talking about uh, Evil Dead Rises. So just, and also psychoanalysis. So just kind of here, there, and everywhere recently is what I'm trying to say. And I'm so appreciative and grateful for these opportunities. And these are people that I absolutely adore. I adore the podcasts. I adore the content that they create, but I adore them as people. They are so kind and nice and funny and smart and all of the great things. And I want to make sure that if you happen to come here and you're listening to this and you haven't heard of these podcasts that you're checking them out. Um, so I'm going to be linking these podcasts in the show notes as well. So please, uh, you know, if you skip my episodes that I'm on, that's okay. But listen to the others. Um, and I should say that I don't think I'm on alone. Um, you know, as like the, I think maybe only once or twice am I kind of the only guest. There is kind of like a panel of folks and it is a panel of exceptional people. So I don't know. I just want to put some shine on that and, uh, all of that will be linked as well. So, all right. The, the uncomfortable bit of self promo out of the way. Thank you for, for listening. We are now episode 41. 40 into this podcast. How amazing is that? And I truly love every moment that I get to sit down and record. And especially now that I've passed off the editing to Kubrick the cat, you know, life is just great. So, um, I, I'm so thankful for this opportunity and thank you for listening. And until next time. Scream Pod Squad.